share with you this morning. Just to say before I get started, I've got just a few copies of the latest newsletter from the Christian Resources Project. If you'd like one afterwards, just ask me for it. If we have a baptism these days, it's a big celebratory occasion, isn't it? You know, it's, we're really excited, the, the person involved is excited, they want to invite family and friends, and we get everybody in because we're, we're just celebrating the grace of God and how wonderful it is that somebody has put their faith in God and has committed their life to follow him. That is not what we've got in Matthew's Gospel. That's not the ethos at all. The Middle East then, and to a large extent still today, is what's called a shame-honor culture. Everything you do is divided into one of these two categories. Either it brings shame on the person and their family and their uh, community, or it brings honor on the person, their family, and their community. And baptism was not a matter of honor it was a matter of shame. Jews generally didn't get baptised. They were God's people after all. What did they need to get baptised for? Gentiles got baptised to become Jews in order to become acceptable to God. And then suddenly John appears. And there's this amazing thing. And he's saying, be baptised and repent of your sins. Wow. That was a matter of deep shame that you would come publicly and say, yep, my life is messed up. I am not living the way that God wants. And I will demonstrate this publicly by being baptized. And people just rolled up. Something, God did something through the preaching, the ministry of John the Baptist. And people took this extraordinary, this unusual step of shaming themselves publicly. But why did Jesus come for baptism? He had no sins to confess. And John's got a problem with it. John says, I need to be baptized by you. Not you, me baptizing you, the other way round. We're not told much about Jesus' life prior to this, but it's a fair guess that John the Baptist and Jesus knew each other as they were growing up. That John certainly knew the, the prophecies and the things that had happened around the birth of Jesus. And John recognized, well, we're not quite sure what, because I'm not sure that John was quite sure what. He certainly had an expectation this might be the Messiah. There was something different. There was something special. There was something of God about Jesus. And so he says to Jesus, no way. It's not for me to baptize you. It's for you to baptize me. Jesus gives an odd sort of answer. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, if you look up the commentaries, they all disagree. No surprise there. And there are all sorts of suggestions. Generally, when the Bible talks about fulfilling righteousness, it means being obedient to God. Well, how could Jesus be obedient to God to repent of his sins and be baptized when he hadn't sinned? Well, the simplest explanation, and I think the most convincing one, is that what Jesus is 
doing is identifying with sinful women and men. He doesn't need to be baptised himself, but he wants to identify with humanity. And in identifying with human beings, with the human race, he is initiating the ministry that will follow, a ministry that will lead to that point where he identifies even more fully by dying on the cross in our place, bearing our sin. Paul describes what Jesus is doing in that well-known passage in Philippians. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The prophet Isaiah had forecast it many, many years before. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus comes to be baptised, to proclaim that he identifies with sinful people like us, and to initiate this ministry that's going to run for three years and lead to the cross. As one commentator puts it, in a traditional Mediterranean culture where society stressed honour and shame, Jesus relinquishes his rightful honour to embrace others' shame. This is an amazing occurrence. And as Jesus identifies with sinful humanity, so God affirms who Jesus is and what he's doing. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And you've got a theme about the Trinity going. And here's the Trinity. It doesn't come very often in Scripture, but here it is. There's... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all involved in this very special moment. It's a funny thing, the Trinity. The word's not in the Bible. And it's the most unusual sort of thing, is it? Both to understand and to think why anybody should ever create it. The Jews, of course, believed in one God, and one only. The Greeks and the Romans called the Jews atheists. Not because they believed in no God, that was ridiculous, everybody believed in some God, but because the Jews did not believe in all the different gods the Greeks and Romans believed in. What you did in those days, you had your own God, and of course your God was the best, like your own football teams better than all the other football teams. But it would be ridiculous to say, all the other gods don't exist, but that was what the Jews said. 
No, all the other gods, they're just idols. They're just made. There is only one God. But then, they met Jesus. And Jesus had a unique intimacy with God, like nothing they'd seen before. And Jesus talked in a way that they'd never heard before, with the authority of God. It was well established, only God can create or control creation. The storm on the lake. And at the end of that storm, when the wind is gone and the boat's in at the shore, the disciples, somewhat terrified, say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? What are we going to make of Jesus? Where does he fit? Only God can heal, yet Jesus heals people. All sorts of people for all sorts of things. In John's Gospel, chapter 9, there's a story of Jesus healing a man who was born blind. A miracle that had never been performed before. And the whole thing wrapped around it is a big discussion. Who is he? The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they want to play it all down. And so they're asking questions about it. But the question there is, who can do these kind of things? What kind of person is he? Only God can give life to the dead. And yet Jesus raises Jairus' daughter and the widow's son and Lazarus. And after the raising of Lazarus, people are beginning to get some idea who Jesus is. This, at the very least, is the Messiah. This is somebody very special sent by God. And it's at that point that the religious leaders who want to calm everything down, want to keep the Romans happy, don't want to cause trouble, start to plot to kill Jesus. And then, of course, after his own crucifixion, Jesus is raised from the dead. And he appears to the disciples, all sorts of disciples, in all sorts of places, in all sorts of ways. And we haven't got time to go into it, but there's absolutely no doubt this is not an hallucination. This is not a trick or anything. They really met him. And they come to the point, to use the words of Thomas, the one who doubted, my Lord and my God. That's an incredible thing for a Jew to say of a human being, my Lord and my God. But what other conclusion could they come to? Who else could he be? They haven't worked out a complicated theology. They haven't done a lot of Bible study and research. They've just observed the facts and they've come to this conclusion. <coughs> and then Jesus ascended and he told them to wait in Jerusalem for his spirit to come. And the Holy Spirit comes and fills them and empowers them. And now they've got an even more complicated situation because quite clearly there is only one God. But God the Father is God and Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God. How are they going to sort that out? Well, the interesting thing in the New Testament is they don't even try. You don't get a lot of detailed theology of Trinity 
in the New Testament. It's just assumed all the way through. God is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Sometimes the three are brought together, like in this uh, passage here, or like in the, the famous prayer that we pray, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Um, and one or two other places. It's just assumed because that was the only thing they could assume. And in some ways, it would have been so much easier if we could just stuck with that. But the trouble is, false teachers came along. And they started to teach us, oh, Jesus isn't really God. He just looks like God, or he was created by God, or he was sent by God, or, and the Holy Spirit isn't really God. It's just a force or a power. Or a, and endless amounts of false teaching came in. And so the church had to think, how do we defend the truth? against false teaching. How do we say who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, and how it all fits together? And eventually, around about the 5th or 6th century, they came up with this. Listen carefully, I shall test you on it afterwards. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence for there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, and the Holy Ghost unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. You're following this, are you? So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. Yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts, and this trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in trinity and the trinity in unity is to be worshipped. And then I just love the punchline. He, therefore, that will be saved, let him think thus of the trinity. <laughs> it's just like a small print in a contract, isn't it? They're just trying to define absolutely everything and pin it down. Why? Because all those things that are going on about co-eternal and infinite and all that, all those things have been attacked by false teachers. And so we get this complicated, complex doctrine that we call the Trinity. <coughs> and the truth is that the Trinity, that God is beyond our understanding. And so we use picture language because that way we can grasp it. Father, Son, 
Holy Spirit. And all these safeguards in the background to make sure we don't muddle that up. Now, this is not just a religious thing, because people can say to us, oh, well, if it's as complicated as all that can't possibly be true, can it? You know, if you can't understand it, how could it be true? This is a slightly shorter quote. This is a science quote, okay? This is quantum mechanics made easy by Wikipedia, right? The possible states of a quantum mechanical system are symbolized as unit vectors called state vectors. Formally, these reside in a complex, separable Hilbert space, variously called the state space or the associated Hilbert space of the system, that is well-defined up to a complex number of norm one, the brackets, the phase factor. In other words, the possible states are points in the projective space of a Hilbert space, usually called the complex projective space. Did you get all that? What do we do? We try and understand quantum theory, and so we use simple picture language and say, oh, light, well, sometimes it behaves like a wave, and sometimes it behaves like a particle, because we can grasp that. And if we can't grasp the physical universe that we live in, if we can't even express science in absolute words, how are we going to express God in words? We can only ever approximate to the nature of God. And the best way of doing that is to use the pictures that God himself gives us through scripture. But the important thing about picture language is you have to use the right picture for the right occasion. In recent times, the picture of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been wrongly used and distorted. We don't see it so much now, but a little while ago there was a great fuss about a doctrine that's called penal substitutionary atonement. In simple words, that Jesus died for our sins and took our punishment. And because of some of the horrendous stories that certain preachers have told, all very... Um, sob story thing about you know people driving buses and having to mow down their own children in order to save innocent bystanders and even worse stuff than that people drowning and you save somebody else it painted this picture which eventually it blew up into a sort of controversy where people are saying this God is a cosmic sadist this is an abusive father doing terrible things to an innocent and an unwilling son because people were taking the wrong elements of the picture language and applying them in the wrong way. What our passage about Jesus' baptism says is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all intimately and absolutely part of the plan of salvation. It's not one person doing something horrible to another person, although we can use some elements of that picture because it helps us to understand a judge passing a sentence and somebody else taking the punishment that we deserve. But we don't push it too far. They're all involved in the plan of salvation. They created it before time began. They're here affirming it as Jesus identifies with sinful humanity. And they're there on the cross. Paul tells us God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So, yet it's picture language. It's important that we take the right bits and we use the pictures in the context of everything else that the Bible tells us. God, God the Father, is not willing 
that any should be saved. Put that alongside the fact that God is the judge. So we've got this complex picture because it answers some of our question, Holy Spirit being us and all that kind of thing. All these things give us a picture. I hope you're relieved about that. I certainly am. So if this is true, if this is what we've got, we've got a a story here, a very simple story in which Jesus identifies with people like us and God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit affirm that identification and all it's going to mean in terms of the cross to come. What is the application for you and me? Well, the very simplest one is if Jesus was baptised, we ought to be baptised. So if we're a Christian and we're not baptised, we ought to be thinking seriously about it and asking the question, not why should I be baptised, but why shouldn't I be baptised? What's, what's stopping me? That's the simplest and the most basic explanation that we can get our application, that we can go back a little bit before that and say, if we've never accepted Jesus, if we've never come to personal faith, take that step. Jesus died for you. Jesus took your sin on himself. He identified with you. He took your shame and your guilt and he offers you a new life and reconciliation with God. Don't let that go past. You can come to church every week for donkey's years and not know Jesus. I knew a guy a few years ago, he'd been in church all his life. He came to faith in his 80s. He suddenly realized that, oh, he, he'd been attending church, he'd been a Sunday school teacher, he'd been a deacon, he'd, been, he'd done all the jobs in the church. But in his 80s, he suddenly thought, I've never really known Jesus. And he came to faith. And he was, for the remaining 10 years or so of his life, he was just about the most lively Christian you've ever come across. If you were standing at the front when they were singing, you'd see him at the back dancing. He was so excited that after all those years, he'd found Jesus. But the other thing is we get this reference to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So here's the application. We are to make disciples, to go in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit and live out, first of all, the life of Jesus, which we're able to do by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And because we are reconciled with God and can be in contact with God by prayer. Not that we're perfect. Not that we can, you know, do everything that we're better than other people. But simply that something of the life of Jesus is seen in us. And then when the life of Jesus is seen in us, we can share in words our experience of Jesus as much as you possibly can and to learn about theology, the understanding of the Bible as much as you can. But it's not essential to make disciples. Making disciples is about saying, I've met Jesus. And if people have got questions, well, we're in it together. There'll be other people in the church. You know, I can say of your minister, Tim, you know, 
wonderful theology has been the Bible College. All the difficult questions, send them to him. You sort them out. Um, somebody else can help with this question and that question and what if and what. But our task is to say, I've met Jesus. Would you like to meet him too? Some years ago, I was at a funeral and uh, the man who died was a Christian and a load of his friends from work had turned up at this funeral who were not Christians and one of them got up to speak and this was his comment on the guy who died. He said, Meg was a great guy. He had a real sense of humour. He was always interested in and cared for other people and we all knew that he had two passions in life the National Trust and his church. In other words, this was a guy who they knew cared, who was fun to be with, and they knew that he had a relationship with Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if that could be said of every one of us?